Two words for you, fashion and sustainability. I wonder if they truly can be brought together. Does fashion by its very nature need to be new, different, constantly changing, seasonal, obviously? What do we actually mean when we talk about sustainable fashion? Is it about the treatment of workers? Is it about the environment? Is it simply that thing of marketing? To dig into this, I'm joined by Professor Alice Payne, Dean of RMIT University's School of Fashion and Textiles, and Ken Pucker, Global Business Lecturer at Tufts University, Boston, former Chief Operating Officer at Timberland. Welcome to you both. Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you for having me. Ken, to give you that proposition that I put at the top there, sustainability and fashion, can those two things be achieved? I worry. If you look over the course of the last 20 years, the incident of use of words like sustainable or eco or green or natural or organic has grown exponentially. At the same time, the environmental impact and damage of fashion as an industry has also grown exponentially. If you go back that same period of time, about 20 years, I think the world produced about 50 billion garments and pairs of shoes. And today the number is north of 120 billion. And fashion's impact on the environment has only grown in terms of land use, chemical usage, water usage, and carbon emissions. And so I think we're currently headed in a uh, scary direction. We'll come back to a number of those points. But Alice, to begin though quickly, I mean, that sense of galloping consumption there, that's a hard thing to smooth out with a promise of sustainability. It is, that's right. I suppose what we have to remember, though, is that fashion is material. In other words, it's exactly as Ken described, this kind of weight of material objects kind of flowing through our society, getting larger and larger. Yet fashion is also immaterial. In other words, it's about cultural expression. It's about the newness of ideas, which might not necessarily be tied to physical things. It might be how you tuck in your shirt a certain way, how you wear your hat. Fashion's also that movement of taste over time and that kind of bubbling up of new creative expression. And I think the challenge for our current times is that the immaterial joy and creative flourishing of fashion has been harnessed to this kind of material weight that um, is causing so much damage. So if we reimagine fashion, it can be sustainable. There's possibly two things in there, are there not, Ken? I mean, there's the consumption of stuff and a desire to be stylish. Do we need to to separate those issues? I hope Alice is right. I fear that style is, in fact, one of the tools used by fashion as an industry to create planned obsolescence and the need to buy ever more stuff. If you look over time, I think the formula that the industry has congealed around is essentially cheap labor plus shorter lead times plus outsourced production plus planned obsolescence leads to the need to buy ever more stuff and unfortunately ever cheaper stuff. Over the same time horizon I described, if you look back 20 years ago, more than 50% of the products that we bought and wore were based on natural materials. And now that number is about 70% synthetics. And those synthetics, which are often cheaper and uh, end up in landfills or incinerated uh, 75 to 80% of the time, and the average life of a garment has gone down, 
the products that end up in landfills that aren't incinerated actually last generations so that my children's children's children will be alive when that fast fashion is still yet to decompose. And so I worry about style as currently foisted upon consumers by the industry. What's behind the remarkable growth in the couple of decades that you began by mentioning? What has led that? I think in large part, the ability of the industry to shorten lead times and to shorten cycle times. If you look back when I started Timberland, the calendar for a new season was typically 18 to 24 months, whereas Zara was able to compress that to somewhere between six weeks and maybe 12 weeks. And now brands like Shein are able to compress that into two or three weeks. And so fashion has gone from longer lead time to what was called fashion to what I would call now real-time fashion, where you have, in Sheehan's case, a network of suppliers who are making small production runs, not based on what's on the runway, but based on what's on TikTok. It's an interesting point, Alice, that introduction of things like social media into this cycle and the, and the effect that that must have. That's right, Jonathan. And Ken summed it up well. We have we, what we've had really the past um, few decades and even solidifying in the past few years is a kind of perfect storm in which this kind of natural human desire for expression and self-expression has been harnessed to an incredibly efficient profit making machine that is predicated on extraction of resources and then production of them into these objects of desire, projecting out to a switched on eager base of citizens who, you know, are seeking that kind of fix, that sort of rush. And that's been incredibly profitable. And it's also working in a globalized system that's almost boundaryless in terms of the way that labor and materials move across from one region to another, moving through different regulatory um, regimes, if you like, and, and almost being able to avoid rules and um approaches that might keep it in check. Interesting though, Alice, at the same time as everything that you describe is happening, we also have an industry which increasingly is describing itself as being sustainable and and making that a very proud boast. We're certainly seeing and we've seen for the past decade or more that as the interest across society and the desire for change and for, um, you know, the real, I guess, imperative to live within planetary boundaries is is really to the fore of people's mind. We've certainly seen the brands and retailers in, in often cases genuinely wanting to seek to make change. However, for them as individual businesses, that desire to make change comes into conflict with, um, you know, the need to keep prices down low to be competitive. So you have these kind of fundamental paradoxes, this kind of push and pull that companies tackle internally. And I guess this is why, from my perspective, this is the structural systemic nature of this problem um, is such that no one company, no matter how well-intentioned they are around sustainability, can actually make the systemic change required. And really, it's collective action that's needed. Do you think, Ken, that, that any of these attempts to sustainability add up to much? Unfortunately, I don't. But I think Alice has landed on a really important point, which is individual versus collective. And so I think left to its own devices, industry has demonstrated over the last really 50 years that corporate voluntary action won't get us to where we need to be, which is living within planetary boundaries. And so therefore, I advocate for policy and citizenship to rise up to help industry actually 
maintain its license to operate. So I've been working, for example, in the last 18 months for a piece of legislation that is now before the New York Assembly, which is called the New York Fashion Act. And the New York Fashion Act is complicated and includes three components. One is due diligence in keeping with OECD regulations. The second is reporting. And the third is action, which is if you're a brand that has sales in excess of $100 million globally that chooses to sell in the state of New York, you have to perform this due diligence and reporting, but you also have to reduce your carbon emissions by 4.2% a year independent of growth. And if you don't, the attorney general in the state of New York has the ability to fine you 2% of global revenue. So where I used to work at Timberland, that would amount to a $35 million fine. And so the legislation has real teeth. And I imagine, Alice, that legislation like that is watched fairly closely internationally. That's right. Um, so, Ken, that it's, it's a very exciting piece of legislation proposed there. And certainly we're seeing around the world definitely a trend towards um, more regulation, both in the human rights due diligence space, you know, think of modern slavery acts and the like, as well as in the sort of extended producer responsibility area. So how producers take responsibility throughout the entire life cycle of their products. And we are seeing that around the world emerging, which I think is, again, to Ken's point, it demonstrates that the limits of voluntary action have been revealed and, and people know that we need to move faster together. And just uh, hyper-localise it, the Australian Fashion Council is, it's not quite a, re- a regulatory step, but trying to influence behaviour within the, within the Australian setting? That's exactly right. So uh, Australia has a product stewardship framework in the Recycling and Waste Reduction Act. And as part of that, it, um, the, the concept of product stewardship, whether voluntary, where industry comes together to decide to make change, whether co-regulatory, where government steps in as well, or mandatory, they're all defined in the Australian regulation already. So the federal government has tasked the consortium led by the Australian Fashion Council to develop a voluntary product stewardship scheme for clothing. And what our consortium has has defined is a plan to create clothing circularity by 2030, meaning how do we significantly reduce the amount of clothing going to landfill, which of course requires systemic change across the entire life cycle of how we design our clothing, how we, um, you know, retail it and, and sell it and how we acquire it and then how we use it as, um, as citizens and then how it eventually is disposed, um, you know, recirculated uh, and then, um, you know, moves through the economy as a material, um, if not a product. So the Australian Fashion Council-led consortium is designing and we have a, a plan for how that scheme can come to fruition and make real systems change that's needed here in Australia. That idea, Ken, of of circularity, that's a pretty attractive concept. I think it is a wonderfully attractive concept in theory. Unfortunately, in practice right now, it's not. So if you look at the fashion industry as of today, about half of 1% of apparel that is worn is actually upcycled into another garment. The vast majority of what you read as recycled content in apparel is actually plastic bottles, which have been recycled into synthetic thread that's then made into a garment, which is actually a loss environmentally because those bottles could be upcycled infinitely if they were made into bottles. But when they're made into fashion, it typically only gets one use. And so the likes of brands like H&M have committed, for example, to double production of goods and grow by 
twice or, you know, double their business by 2030, go from 3 billion to 6 billion garments and have their environmental impact per garment via circularity. And yet circularity, as I mentioned, is more theoretical than practical today. And there are enormous obstacles from getting from here to there, including who pays for the infrastructure, the economics of virgin versus recycled fabrics, the business models that are proposed around recycle and upcycle and reuse and re rental, which are non-economic today. And so I worry that the industry is actually focused on circularity as a kind of get out of free jail pass, which is allows it to grow while ostensibly reducing its impact. But yet it's only ostensibly and theoretically today. There's no evidence of scale-oriented companies that are actually implementing circular models at any scale. What do you make of that, Alice? As Ken speaks there, I've in mind I have the, the sort of the carbon offset approach to reducing carbon emissions, which we know is perhaps a sleight of hand rather than a, a constructive process towards making those reductions. I mean, in a business which has such galloping, such escalating growth, the change required it just seems astronomical. It really does. And Ken's correct in that the pathway from here to there seems almost insurmountable when you think of the fundamental paradigm the industry is operating under and that circularity could easily be co-opted as a kind of feel-good band-aid. What we're proposing in the plan that we're developing is a means to overcome some of those barriers. So to give you the potted version, uh, we're proposing a four cent contribution on every garment placed on the market in Australia. And that four cent contribution, if say 60% of the market signed up, that would raise $33 million annually thereabouts that could then be strategically and judiciously placed at the bottlenecks that are inhibiting, well, many of them, the move to a circular economy. So, for example, there'd be funds that would support that citizen behaviour change piece. So, rather than this continual buying new, the highest point in the circular economy thinking would be refuse, rethink. How do you actually rethink what you're consuming and why? And then going down to um, the circular business model. So, Ken rightly pointed out the challenge with a re-commerce model. That is something that to date has been more on the periphery of the core business of fashion companies because the, the traditional linear economy is what works for them. So, there needs to be a way to test and scale out and prove those circular business models at scale. And this kind of fund we're proposing would help with that. The third component would be around the, um, the really tricky part of how do you effectively sort, collect, and then find new value for the, the vast amount of material inflow through the economy. I think, Ken, listening to that and that sort of amount of detail and the legislation that you describe in New York State, there must be an apprehension within the industry that it, its social licence is imperiled. I hope there is. I'm not certain. I think the plan that Alice outlined is intelligent and thoughtful. And I think the notion of a four cent per garment tax, while I don't know the economics of Australia, it makes a great deal of sense. I still worry that there are barriers, even with kind of EPR legislation included, for example, in the technology limitations to recycle 
product. So for example, today there are good technologies to upcycle and recycle single fabrics like cotton. But when you get to blended fabrics, there's no technology at scale that's proven economic and capable. And so while I'm hopeful that the thoughtful plan that Alice outlined will work, I'm still a believer that we need even more stringent interventions in order to get to a place that allows us to live within planetary boundaries in this industry. Alice, I wonder if, and, and it, as, as I think these thoughts, I'm conscious that it's almost victim blaming, but I, I wonder if the fundamental thing that needs to change underneath all of this is individual behaviour, is for people to somehow free themselves of the thing that they are sold with such compelling power and to realise that stylishness, which is at the essence of this conversation, a sense of one's individual self and how you present yourself to the world is not necessarily a thing that needs to be consumed. Well, what you've hit upon there, Jonathan, is I suppose the highest level of system change that's made possible. And that's when you change the paradigm under which the system operates. So what Ken and I together we've been talking about is changing the rules of the system. In other words, with legislation and so on. However, the highest intervention point would be actually changing the mindset, the values, the thinking, but that each person who is an individual within that system that governs them because that is how it's enacted through our lives. It's how it's enacted in the companies we work in and the like. So how do you make that change um, in an individual's perspective? And there's a wonderful systems thinker, Danella Meadows, who I work, I draw on here. And, you know, she notes that the systems change or the paradigm shift in an individual can happen in a moment. You know, the scales can fall from your eyes and you can see the world differently. Now, of course, when we have a world of 7 billion plus people, 8 billion, whatever it might be, changing each person's individual paradigm is not going to be a linear process. It's going to be many different intervention points coming together. It means changing the rules and having people find success and prosperity in a new system. It means having, and I spoke about that sort of citizen behaviour change messaging, as we begin to see that a good life, a life where you can flourish and have feel connected to the living world, feel connected to one another, is not predicated on stuff. As you begin to see that in your own life and in the life of your community, people's value shift and the paradigm shifts. So it is the fundamental leverage point, if you like. Um, it's also the hardest to shift. And I feel that it's going to require many different interventions and for some time. Tough but inspiring. And, and look, a good note to end what's been a, a thoughtful and nuanced conversation. Thanks to both. That, that idea of fashion and sustainability, it's a Tricky concept, as we have explored. So thanks to Professor Alice Payne, Dean at RMIT University School of Fashion and Textiles, and to Ken Pucker, Global Business Lecturer, Tufts University in Boston, former Chief Operating Officer at Timberland. Thank you to you both. Thanks so much, Thank Jonathan. You. And this is Blueprint, ABC RN. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.